is an Odyssey original. This is KNX in Depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Charles Feldman. Is the case against former President Trump strong enough? We'll go in depth to answer that question. Thieves are using a very scary phone scam to try to steal money from worried and anxious people, and we'll explain what it is. Also, do you think we know everything about milk? If you do, you may be in for a surprise. But we are going to begin talking about, of course, the indictment against former President Trump and whether it's strong enough. Uh, We are going to plan, uh, at least we are planning, to talk with a defense attorney in New York, New York who handles these sort of high-profile cases. At the moment, we seem to not be able to uh, connect with her. But uh, it is the open question today uh, that you can read about and hear about uh, from critics uh, and also not critics alike that they are looking at the indictment, uh, this 34-count indictment that the uh, Los uh, Los Angeles, that the New York uh, uh, grand jury, New York City grand jury brought against former President Trump and the rationale, the legal rationale for why it rises to a felony because uh, under New York law, the alleged falsification of his business records, which is what the 34 counts are about, in and of themselves uh, would not under New York law be considered felonies. They're misdemeanors. So they had to be pegged to some other alleged crime. And that's where this statement of facts come in. That was a, a separate document that was filed along with the uh, indictment. And in that statement of fact, it lays out this narrative. It, it, it's, it, and it is a narrative. And it sort of explains in the uh, viewpoint anyway of the prosecutors in New York that Mr. Trump was engaged in the conspiracy to shield himself uh, and his candidacy, his campaign then in 2016, so that uh, hush money, alleged hush money that he paid to uh, two people, actually three, because they mentioned this thing about a doorman, and which is another <laughs> part of the story. Uh, but in any event, uh, what the prosecutor in New York is saying is, that by doing that, by giving this, uh, concealing the money, falsifying the books allegedly uh, from his company, the so-called hush money to the porn star and to the other two people that are mentioned in the indictment, that what Mr. Trump was doing was trying to uh, conceal embarrassing information that might impact his then candidacy for the presidency. And that would, in the view of the DA, violate election law. And what's ironic about that, if we can think back to 2016, remember the uh, bombshell that happened right before the election was the news that Hillary Clinton's emails were part of an investigation. Again, this came out of the blue, seeming with the FBI and uh, remember uh, James Comey making that announcement that people thought that's that's highly irregular. And then, of course, as that was investigated, turned out to have been nothing, but it was too late. It it had some impact on the election, many uh, political experts say. So then. Uh, now we're backstopping uh, 2016 and discovering if these allegations are true, that some work was actually being done to shield Mr. Trump uh, to have happen to him. What 
happened to Hillary Clinton, embarrassing information coming out right before the election. You know, the thing that's making this tricky, uh, according to all the legal experts, is that uh, this is sort of a, a theory that has not actually been applied in New York State because they're alleging that, that again, this was in furtherance of his, Mr. Trump's trying to shield himself from embarrassment when he was running for president, and it was a violation of federal election laws. But it is unusual for a state to try to indict someone uh, for federal law violations when the federal government, as we now know, uh, looked at this evidence and decided that there wasn't enough to prosecute uh, Mr. Trump under federal charges. So this is something that is going to be a very, from the point of view of for legal scholars, it's going to be a very interesting case to follow because there is some question whether or not in the future, if it ever goes to trial, before it ever goes to trial, whether or not a judge might narrow it down or even throw out some of the charges because of the novelty of of what the uh, Manhattan District Attorney is claiming. Mm, Very interesting. We've got a lot more in-depth on the way and still to come on the show today. We're going to be talking about something you probably would not think that we were going to talk about, and that is milk. Former President Trump seems to have a way with the media. He knows exactly what will give him maximum exposure. Is it a mutually beneficial relationship, or does Trump constantly pull one over on all of us? Les Rose is a professor of broadcast and digital journalism at Syracuse University. He worked for more than 20 years as a photojournalist and field producer with CBS News and also worked at CBS Channel 2 right here in L.A. Les, thanks for being with us. Hey, it's my pleasure, truly. So uh, Mr. Trump is a very unique an unusual animal, no matter whether one likes him or dislikes him, in that uh, I can think of no other public figure in at least modern times who has managed to keep the spotlight focused on him as long and as intensely as he has. And I guess the question is, how complicit are the media? Well, Here's here's the deal. It took me a while to, to figure this one out, and I've certainly had time since 2016. The media is utterly complicit, but he represents a commonality that we all used to have. We all used to agree on TV shows in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and then it was Breaking Bad and, you know, The Sopranos. We kind of, other than Super Bowl Sunday, don't have a lot of commonalities. And and he he has so many... So many of them, like like children, like sex, like um, coming up with nicknames for people, and and then it goes deeper from that. So he's kind of the the aberration that you either love him or hate him, but you kind of have to pay attention to that new shiny thing. You know, when he uh, made it back to Mar-a-Lago after the arraignment, uh, the media were led to believe that uh, he was going to be making some statements about the arraignment itself. So uh, most of the media dutifully uh, put him on when he began speaking. But it became very quickly apparent that uh, it was uh, basically a word for word his campaign speeches from his last couple of rallies and that he wasn't offering anything new. But then he went into something the judge in the case had admonished him not to do. He went after the judge. He went after the D.A. He made some personal attacks on them, not just on them, but on their families, almost as if Donald Trump wants a gag order imposed on him because that will go into his uh, his playing the role of the martyr that he can say they're trying to silence. him. Now, this 
I don't think this helps with the moderate voters in the next election, but it certainly makes him money. Is the money more important than the votes in this case? Uh, certainly not in this case, because lo and behold, uh, it's the moderates are turning away from him. And more importantly, I think the independents seem to be turning away from him. Uh, he could be in a lot of trouble. Imagine having extra money in your campaign chest, but nobody's listening. I mean, he comes with so much baggage. I'm, I'm really questioned that, that this year is going to be a whole lot different than prior. So what is the solution? Because uh, it sounds like there isn't one. It sounds like we are destined as a culture to be enslaved to <laughs> Donald Trump, good or bad, trial or no trial, conviction or no conviction, candidacy or no candidacy, forever, or at least until so long as he's alive. He's, I, I agree he's had a longer arc of attention span than most people, but I, I'm telling you, he hits so many bases. If you look back to uh, 2016, the names Huckabee and Cruz and Marco Rubio and Rand Paul and, and Christie and Kasich all meant something to us at one point, but he was this bright, shiny object that moths to fly. I mean, moths to the lamp, we couldn't help but look. And I mean... It goes all the way back to coming down the escalator, and he's milked the, the whole uh, NBC connection with uh, um, biggest. It's not I won't say, no, the Apprentice. Yeah, the Apprentice. Yes, right, the yeah. Apprentice. <laughs> Sorry, uh, but it's just he he hits different people in so many on so many levels. Like with family, you know, who the heck admits or indicates that he wants to date his daughter? It, it, and the whole the whole excess Hollywood busting. I thought he was gone then, but but clearly not. And uh, to Charles' point, uh, how long are we stuck with him? Because you know, even let's say uh, we go through twenty twenty four, he doesn't win the election. Even then, I, I highly doubt he's going to be going away. He's still going to be uh, in the system, kind of a gadfly, kind of uh, getting notoriety for himself. Is our culture locked into we only care about uh, notorious things and only care about flash and what outrages people? How do we how do we ever uh, wean ourselves off of the outrage? Well, you, you, you do so, I'm afraid, by having something else coming along. Uh, if we get more deeply involved in the war, uh, if something comes along that really matters, that we don't need him for either comic relief or something to scream at at the tube, then it will happen. I mean, think of Paris Hilton and other such uh, media media temporary loves that the art goes up and down and and paris is currently trying to make a comeback and i'm not comparing them but it wasn't so long ago i i mean i covered the trial there in la that uh oj simpson was something that went on and on and on yeah but, but look yeah but look at at all the things that have to your point all the things that have actually occurred since donald trump made the front pages of, you know, I was in New York in those days of the New York Post. That was in the 80s. And right. and since then, yeah, we had OJ. We had we had not one but two Gulf Wars. We had a, a, a stock market crash in the late 80s. We had the Great Recession. Uh, we had the pandemic, the pandemic, a once in a century pandemic. And despite all those things, the one thing that still is getting the spotlight is Donald J. Trump. He, he's, 
he's getting the spotlight because he he it's almost like if you don't like how he treats his family then you might think that he has the key to making fortunes which of course he's proven he doesn't thanks to trump stakes the school the casinos and on and on it's like soon as you you find someone that likes him we're in an age where they won't believe otherwise, which brings us to the Fox News thing, which is very recent news. I, I always spelled Fox News, for better or worse, F-A-U-X, for foe. And I'm afraid it's kind of been proven. I, I have I have friends working there. I I know there's many legitimate reporters at Fox, but the, the management is just just hanging on to his viewership until they can't anymore. All right, thank you so much, uh, Lee Rose, professor of broadcast and digital journalism at Syracuse University. Fake Donald Trump mug shots are popping up. Some people think it's uh, to AI. Jessica Galani is a media studies professor at the University of Pittsburgh, uh, Greensburg. She's a researcher at the Pitt Disinformation Lab. Uh, Jessica, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So these fake mugshots uh, produced by uh, AI, uh, now it's a very simple thing to do. And, of course, these all started popping up uh, after, you know, the arraignment and and the official arrest. And uh, as far as we know, there was no mugshot taken, certainly not one that has been publicly released. And that, of course, didn't stop the Trump team from uh, mocking up one of their own uh, to put on T-shirts and make some money from. But the rest of these mugshots, what purpose do they accomplish if uh, and do people think Think that they're real. I think that there are probably people who see them and think that they could be real, especially some of the more convincing ones. They vary in degree of convincingness and quality, and it might be a difference between you know a deep fake versus a cheap fake. With a cheap fake being the easy available technological tools that many everyday people have access to and can therefore create content from. I think it's understandable that a lot of people thinking about this very big story would want visual proof of the image that they may be thinking about in terms of this process. But as far as we know, there is no actual mugshot. The fundraising uh, on a pretend mugshot that the Trump campaign has done, I think, uh, kind of contributes to the folklore. But so far, we do not have one. And and this really is a, uh, unfortunately, uh, a prime example, is it not, of the dangers, I mean, for all the good that AI might be able to do in terms of uh, the information it might supply people and, and the speed at which it can do it, uh, but when it comes to things like creating deep fakes, uh, fake visuals, uh, disinformation in effect, this is actually a pretty good example of that because there are an awful lot of people who are going to look at that and are not going to be sophisticated enough to to try to figure out, is this actually a, a mugshot taken by the court system or is it something that they're going to look at it and go there? There's proof that, uh, you know, and especially if they are are uh, supporters of Mr. Trump, there's proof that in their view he's being persecuted and there's this mug uh, mugshot. And where does this end? It's such a good question. And I think that it is really one of the ethical questions of our time. To what degree are we going to have any faith or trust in the realm of the visual or in our information ecosystems when we have so many examples of low quality information or fake information that circulates and and does 
seem very convincing to a lot of different people. I think it's part of why our political culture is such a deeply divided one. It feels as though we operate in these different information universes. And in many ways, we do. Uh, because of how, you know, the the content that we see is algorithmically determined based on our prior use of these uh, social media platform tools. And if we've already been likely to uh, be engaging with content creators who create fake information, we're that much more likely to continue to see it. How can the average person, when they see something on the Internet or somebody sends them something, how can the average person tell that something is a deep fake? Well, I think it's difficult for the average person to be able to tell. I think a lot of them have this sense of uncanniness. But one of the problems of mis- and disinformation in general is the element of confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is the psychological phenomenon that uh, we are more likely to believe information that confirms what we already believe, that tells us how we already feel. And we're more likely to be skeptical of information that complicates our existing beliefs. And because of that, um, it is hard when we're emotionally intense about a, a story. Um, we're more likely to be fooled by confirmation bias and therefore more likely to be tricked by bad information. So I think one of the biggest tools that folks can use is the uh, taking the pause and kind of double checking and verifying when when something seems too good to be true, when a story seems um, just too outlandish and you know too confirming of what we already believe to seem real, you know, go into uh, the a search engine and try to find corroboration of that information. If there's only one source that you can find that's confirming it, then it's probably not real or it's not out there enough to have been verified. Mm. All right, uh, Jessica Galani at uh, University of Pittsburgh Greensburg. Thank you so much for joining us. You're listening to KNX In-Depth along with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. A scary phone scam is becoming more popular uh, with thieves. Usually it's a man who's going to call an older person, and they claim to be holding a relative of the uh, potential victim hostage. So we're going to uh, talk now with Carrie Kursky, who is a consultant who helps people avoid identity theft and other types of scams. Carrie, uh, thanks for being with us. So what happens then? So uh, somebody makes a phone call. They get somebody on the phone. They tell them they're holding a relative. Then what? Yeah, so what makes this the scheme even more convincing is that usually they're using caller ID spoofing, and it'll display the phone number of their relative who they claim to have kidnapped. And then at that point, they're going to demand money, um, either, either through Zelle, or they might have you drive to, it's called like a, a Bitcoin, reverse, I call it reverse ATM, where instead of getting money out, you put money in, and then it goes to their um, their cryptocurrency wallet. So the whole point of it is to to extort money from you. So this seems kind of work intensive for the thieves, which I imagine has never stopped them before. But they have to have some access to some identity information if they're going to spoof the phone number of the potential person they claim they're holding. Right. How how easy is is it for them to do that? Actually, it's much easier than you would think. Uh, nowadays, with all the data aggregators, you, they can buy databases that will go back showing relatives from three degrees. Um, it'll have their phone numbers, their contact information, also social media. 
a lot of times the social media platforms will have tag your relatives or they'll have family trees. So it's really easy for people to go online and, and use these tools that are free to anyone to use to be able to figure out, you know, connections, who 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 knows who, so that way they can further the scam. Are, are these scams usually perpetrated by, uh, you know, like big crime rings or, or is it some like teenager sitting somewhere in Eastern Europe? Most of the time, it's a larger crime ring because like you brought up, it does take a little bit more of an effort. They have to do the caller ID spoofing. They have to know, you know who the connections are, that sort of thing. But that's not to say that you won't have a, you know, a, a, a lone wolf who will end up trying doing it himself just to see what he can get. But these criminal rings, they usually work off of volume. So they could be calling thousands of people to a day. They could have a hundred of so-called employees who work for this criminal ring. Um, so it's a huge cash cow. They make a lot of money off of these scams. And it probably works, does it not, because of the urgency of the call. I mean, that's how scammers usually get you by uh, demanding you've got to do something right away or something bad is going to happen. And when you say you've got a relative that they're in danger, uh, you know, I imagine that that ratchets up the emotional response absolutely the two best friends of a scammer fear and confusion and this scam has both of them because like you said when you get that phone call and you can hear noises in the background especially with the caller id coming up being that person so you assume they're calling from their phone number um so it is it's very terrifying for people and what happens physiologically when when we're faced with a threat you know, the, the blood tends to drain from the brain and goes to the extremities. It's a whole, you know, um, fight or flight type of thing. Uh, so people just need to stop, take a deep breath. Um, and one thing that they could do is even ask the relative or ask the so-called kidnapper a question and have them answer it, knowing that it's completely false. Um, for a quick example, like the grandparent scam in the past, we used to tell people that say, oh, well, ask about, you know, cousin Billy or ask about their brother, Tom. Well, there is no brother, Tom, but the criminal doesn't know that. And they'll say, oh, yeah, no, we've already talked to them or oh, we're aware of them. Well, that's a telltale sign that it's a scam right out of the gate. Do you call the cops? Um, you can, uh, you know, obviously, once you know your loved one is safe and you've confirmed that they are not in trouble, you know, then if you want to call it, it's call them. It's up to you. But do they if do it? Do they, money, yeah, but do they absolutely. do it? Yeah. But do the cops do anything? If you call the police, do they kind of go, uh-huh, 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 uh, and then suggest you come in the next day and fill out a report that nobody ever looks at? Yeah, the chances of them doing a physical investigation and tracking down who did this are pretty slim because a lot of the stuff, like I said, they're using color ID spoofing. So to even find out what phone number they're calling from is difficult. But if you suffer an out-of-pocket loss, you do need to file that police report. Doesn't mean they're going to investigate it, but you need to have that report as your proof of the loss. And then you might be able to work with your accountant. And I've had some people tell me that they could write some of that fraud loss off on their taxes. Now, granted, it's not like getting all the money back, but at least it's a little bit of something. All right. Last question before we run out of time. Uh, why haven't our tech companies, because they're really smart, developed a tool that you and I can use to know when someone is spoofing a phone number? They're working on it. Um, they've been working on it since about 2020, 2021 with the whole Shake Stir campaign. Um, there was just another announcement put out by the FCC. So they couldn't change anything legislatively. And the, the phone carriers were not allowed to you know, intercept calls. There was, it was a violation of the law. So with Shake and Stir, it allowed them to create technology that was a procedural change to the FCC so they can try to identify these calls before they even get to you. That's why a lot of times on your phone, when you go to answer it, it'll say scam. So it's still in it. It's infancy as far as the technology and being able to really catch these spoofs, but they're they're working on it. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, Carrie Kursky is a consultant, helps people like 
uh, avoid identity theft and other types of scams. Well, scientists and doctors at UC San Diego have opened a brand new institute to study milk. But not the milk you buy from the store. It's the kind you get from mom, at least when you were younger. I'm assuming human mom because this is the Human Milk Institute. Dr. Elisa Stellwagen is a pediatrician and co-director of this new institute. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Why uh, study human milk? Why a whole institute for this? You know, it's, it's this nutrition that's so foundational in human health. But amazingly, as much as we know about many other bodily functions of the human body, we, we just don't know that much about the biology of human milk. And I think most people think of mother's milk or breast milk as a pure nutritional exercise for mom and baby, but it's really so much more than that. And we aim to study all about those elements that make it more than just a nutritional. I, I, I do find it amazing, though, that... Uh... I mean, from what I've been reading this morning, there are institutes studying almost anything you can think of. There are institutes that are studying, you know, coffee. Or there are probably institutes that are studying what color pen ink is best. Uh, how come there hasn't been one to study something as fundamental as human milk? You know, the kind of the sad story is that for something that was mandatory for the survival of our, of our species for, what, millennia, right? It, it really fell apart about 100 years ago when we became more industrialized and there became commercial infant milks available. And it really fell off people's radar. And I think a lot of a lot of the health issues we see in children and maybe in adults is due to this lack of breast milk feeding. And it's coming back. You know, the breast breastfeeding rates in in California are very good. Um, how long people sustain it is another matter. But really, it's coming to the forefront again. We're learning more, and especially for the most fragile infants, uh, human milk can be life-saving. What are some things that we don't know about milk that we should try to find out? Yeah, you know, I I mentioned the nutrition, of course, is important, and there's a lot of elements of human milk that are so interesting, like its dynamic nature. So again, people think, well, cow's milk, same day to day, but human milk has this just amazing quality. It changes over the weeks of lactation. You know, we're recommending now people breastfeed for a year or longer if they want to. It changes day to day. It changes over the course, like the morning milk is different than evening milk and during the course of a feeding. So it's very dynamic. And that that understanding that the infant is programmed to receive certain type of milk in the morning and another at night and um, is something I think people don't understand. But, you know, on top of that, really, this I mentioned biology of, of milk and I think the corollary is with blood. Like we all understand blood is more than just its oxygen carrying capacity. It has a lot of antibodies and immune factors and hormones and human milk is the same. It has all all that robust biology and it's it's really incredible when you start diving into it and learning more about it. I would imagine that you would have to have uh, samples from really kind of different parts of the world, right? Because you don't want to have you don't want to presume that it's all the same or do you? Oh, that's that's such a great point. No, I think there's, again, so much we don't know, even regional differences in milk. How about environmental elements, you know, toxins or, um, you know, things that people consume get into mother's milk. There's a a lot that we don't know. And one of the elements of the Milk Institute, um, of course, it's very important because I run it, but we run a, a milk bank at the University of California, San Diego. 
and we are collecting milk that we process and sell to hospitals to feed tiny babies. But in this, we end up with extra milk that we can channel to research. And that's one of our goals is can we work together to drive that knowledge in human milk and learn more about things like regional differences, biology, nutrition, and benefits to mother and child. You know, it's very interesting when you mentioned that, uh, you know, mother's milk can be different depending on the time of day or, or, or which week you're in after after birth. But uh, it, there's also some corollary stuff that you can find out about this, too, and some science that you could advance in that maybe finding out, uh, uh, investigate some diseases or problems with mothers after they have children that maybe aren't apparent until you study this factor, right? Oh, yeah. You know, and this this uh, concept of, about making breast milk and nursing your child being important to mother's health, is, I think is also really new. And, you know, at the simplest level, it's this calorie drain on the mother. It may help with, you know, achieving your normal weight. It may help prevent diabetes, but it also reduces the risk of stroke and heart attack in a woman long after she's breastfed. It's associated with better bone mineralization long after you wean that child. And so there's a lot of um, inputs to say nothing about, like, as you said, the different um, diseases that a woman might have and how can it feed back. But I think diabetes is a good example because we know that people that um, breast milk feed their baby can have better diabetic control, perhaps due to weight loss, but it's probably more complicated than that. And very quickly, do you need volunteers? Oh, well... First of all, <laughs> the milk bank is looking uh, very much looking for people who have extra milk that their child doesn't need, and they're volunteer donors. The people donate their milk to us, and we process it. Uh, we do a thorough vetting of the donor, just like with blood donation, and then we process it, and we sell it to hospitals to feed the tiniest, most fragile, sick, premature babies and ill newborns. So volunteers in terms of milk donor donors, yes. And I think, yes, for other types of volunteers, as we expand, we um, are you know, trying to engage the researchers in our community and people that work in the, in the community setting as well, because until we all work together, you know, we can't just be an ivory tower studying human milk. We need to look at the broader picture. What's going on in the community? What can we do to help breastfeeding rates? What can we help to do people succeed with human milk feeding their own child? So there's a lot of community engagement that needs to go on as well. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, that is uh, Dr. Lisa Stellwagen of the Human Milk Institute. And we'll have more in-depth tomorrow.